You are Locked On the NBA, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Thursday edition of Locked On NBA with Ben Golliver, Washington Post national columnist. I'm David Locke. Thank you very much for tuning in to our Thursday edition of Locked On NBA. And there's some fun ones to talk about tonight and some big ones to look toward today. I want to start off with Miami going into Philadelphia for the 108-104 win. Lots of different aspects to this one. Um, One, I just love watching Miami play. Honestly, Ben, they just play harder than anyone else in the league. They get every 50-50 ball. They move it. They make the extra pass. They're creative offensively. And then they go old school and zone it up defensively. No question. They're exactly the type of team. Not only are they fun to watch, but they're the type of team that maybe you're expecting early on. Hey, they're not going to be able to keep this momentum up. You know, this kind of feels too good to be true. And yet the deeper that we go into the season, the more true it feels. You know, one thing that I uh, took away just from the end of that game, I mean, obviously Philly has this big frantic rally late. Uh, Kendrick Nunn, you know, in this kind of rookie of the year type conversation, uh, gets himself to the free throw line. He misses both free throws. But I thought it was a great teachable moment for basketball fans, uh, for basketball coaches out there. After missing the two free throws that could have iced the game, he immediately gets back on defense, gets himself between Ben Simmons and the basket, multiple effort defensive plays to cut off Ben Simmons, driving to his right. Simmons comes back to his left. Nunn's right there, shadows him, no foul, keeps him out of the paint, uh, and it winds up forcing Philadelphia to kind of rush and take a a contested three-pointer on a kickout pass by Simmons. I just thought it was great mental awareness by Nunn. Look, you don't always steal the game at the free throw line, but I thought he sealed that win uh, with the defensive stop. Not to mention his 26 points, four rebounds, and five assists. Why does Miami just play harder than everybody else? <laughs> well, they like to call it the culture, right? I mean, we've been hearing that one for years and years. I think some of it is just how they target players, right? I mean, I think you can go back and, uh, you know, was it any surprise at all when they drafted Justice Winslow? No. I mean, Bam Adebayo seems like an absolutely perfect fit. Um, and even with some of these younger guys that they're bringing in, Hero and none, they're just kind of pure ballers. And it really feels to me like, you know, Pat Riley kind of has a type, you know, and, and Eric Spolstra, uh, you know, came up under Pat Riley, has a similar type, knows how to get the most out of those, uh, you know, kinds of players. Uh, they have a similar identity. Uh, again, when they go and target a Jimmy Butler, as soon as that, you know, match uh, becomes news, you know, between player and team, it's like, oh, duh, of course, this makes all the sense in the world. Um, he's going to be a, a completely natural fit, and, and that was the case there too. Um, so from that standpoint, uh, I think that they're not lucking into this, right? This is all completely by design, and it has been for a long time down there. You know, watching them, a few things jump out to me. One, the way they move the basketball. Uh, I think they might have had five guys with five assists tonight. Maybe it was only four guys with five assists tonight. Um, and so while you know Jimmy Butler at times seems to be their point guard, I'm not sure if he actually is. They've just they just move it. They make the extra pass. And then the other one in the coaching circles, everyone talks about Spolstra and a lot of them talk about him kind of being a thief, right? That he steals everyone else's plays. I don't know if they mean it critically or endearing, but from what I've heard about Spolstra is that he started his career in the film room and he still kind of prides himself on that. That he is absolutely willing to go research everybody else's stuff see the best stuff they have out there and steal it and institute it and they ran 
with like one minute left in the third quarter, they ran a play where Bam out of Bayou had the ball on the right el- left elbow, and they had a back cutter on the on the far on the weak side, and Adebayo fakes the bounce pass, and then out of nowhere, another back cut comes in the same route, and he's able to make that pass. And the next play down, they got another back cut. They just have great spacing. They just work it. I, I just love watching the way Miami plays. Yeah, man, I think there's a lot of teams who would not have empowered Bam Adebayo like the Heat have. Um, you know, sometimes his turnover issues, they actually make my skin crawl a little bit. You know, I think Spolster actually has a little bit more – patience with uh you know entrusting bam as a playmaker for his teammates than i would have and i think a lot of coaches just maybe wouldn't have seen that vision would have maybe tried to pigeonhole him more as an offensive player but not only are we seeing him do a little bit more with the ball in terms of uh you know attacking the the paint uh, at times for some pretty spectacular dunks uh he's, he's more than just this you know lob finisher or the second chance opportunity guy like maybe we thought uh, earlier in his career but like you're saying, I mean, he, he's really in a position to set up his teammates to be a part of that ball movement that you're describing, uh, to kind of have an infectious energy, uh, you know, with their uh, their overall offense. And it's working out for them. Uh, and uh, I didn't see it coming. I'll be one of the first people to admit it. I, I liked his game last year just fine, but I think he's been, you know, a revelation. I mean, nothing short of that this season. Well, I, uh, I thought they'd be the one or two defensive team in the league, and frankly, the last two weeks, their defense hasn't been very good. That's what was such a good win for Miami tonight is they actually haven't been defending. They were kind of in 20th in the league um, defensively. Let me flip it over to Philadelphia. What do you see from that team right now? Well, I mean, there's a bunch of different things going on. I mean, first of all, I think that MB did show up for, you know, and that hasn't been something you could just take for granted here this season. I think that, to me, has been one of the, the biggest question marks of the year is why are we not getting guys like Embiid and you know, Jokic in Denver doing what Giannis did, which is once you have a taste of success, real big time, like all NBA success, why are you not, you know, bringing that every single night consistently the following year? And so, uh, you know, that's been one question. I mean, I think that uh, you know Harris has given them some pretty good minutes here uh, lately, and so uh, that has keyed, I think, some of their winning stretches uh, at certain times. I mean, they need all the space they can get. He's been giving that, uh, and they've been playing you know fairly well on balance um, recently. But I think that uh, the people who complain and say, "Look, they need a more traditional backcourt playmaker, pick and roll guy, ball handler," I think those people are onto something, you know, and. That's not to put this all on Simmons' shoulders to say that he's letting them down in some way. Uh, you know, he had an efficient game, and he's you know doing the, the typical all-around contributions that he's known for uh, in this matchup against Miami. But you know, so, certain situations just call for I think you know guys who can break down defenses off the dribble and get the ball moving and create some cleaner shots for their teammates. Uh, and I think in, in this situation again, I mean, they shot 12 for 39 on threes. The final look that they got, you know, wasn't the best in the world that Simmons created. Uh, and I think to me, uh, you know, having someone who can be on the ball uh, and, and really get deep, like I'm mentioning, can actually make life easier for guys who are maybe only good outside shooters rather than great outside shooters. The interesting one to me on them is the the Horford and Bede things is not really working. I mean, it's not terrible, but offensively, when they're both on the floor together, their offensive ratings are 102. When and Horford's on the floor without Embiid, it's a 112, 10 points better. And when Embiid is on the floor without Horford, it's a 106 right in the middle. They're plus nine when Embiid's on the floor without Horford. They're plus nine when Horford's on the 
on the floor without Embiid, and they're plus six when they're both on the floor. So it's not terrible when they're both on the floor, but it's not maximizing. And it Al Horford, to me, is just absent when he's on the floor with Embiid. He's so great when otherwise, but he just feels completely irrelevant when he's on the floor with Embiid. No, I hear you. And if we look around the league, how many teams are really playing what we would call two centers simultaneously and having success with it? I mean, the one team that would pop out is you could say the Lakers are doing that, you know, with either Dwight or JaVale and Anthony Davis. But Anthony Davis is an athletic freak who can cover ground, who's in his prime, who's moving well, who's a matchup nightmare against every single person who's guarding him. So you're winning those matchups a lot if you're the Lakers. You're overwhelming teams with your size, your athleticism, and your physical strength, not to mention your vertical finishing ability as well. I mean, those lobs are a big deal. I think that's kind of the problem when you're talking about Horford alongside Embiid. I mean, he's in that power forward role, right? Well, he's not explosive athletically. Um, He's not uh, somebody who's going to be covering ground like crazy defensively against smaller matchups. He's a little bit exploitable uh, in that way. And then offensively, he's not punishing you for you know, going smaller against him or, or going quicker against him. He's not going to be this big low block scorer uh, by any stretch. And then you know, from a spacing standpoint, again, like he could shoot it, but he's just not this knockdown high-volume stretch four uh, in that role, right? So uh, we, I think for that pairing to work, they were going to have to be like by far the best defense uh, in the league together. And that seems possible to me coming into the year. I was like, well, if these guys can just clamp down everybody – they can win lots of games super ugly, and it'll just be fine. Uh, but I do think that they're running into uh, just a stylistic and aesthetic, you know, strategic, uh, you know, type of uh, you know, pretty hard wall here by trying to play those two guys together. I mean, I think that just NBA best practices say don't play two centers together. Uh, and if you do, hope that they're really, really athletic and really good outside shooters, and they can win their individual matchups. And I think in, in this case, uh, they just don't have those pieces. Al Horford's numbers went on the floor with Joel Embiid. This is crazy. You ready for this? Per 100 yep. possessions, he takes only 10 shots. <laughs> and when he's on the floor yeah. without Embiid, he takes 23 per 100 possessions. 10 versus 23. Now. Well, yeah, I think I referred to him as like a lamp recently. You know, right. when he's playing with Embiid. Like he's just, he's just furniture in the living room at that point. When he's on the floor with Embiid, he's shooting 39% from the field and 19% from three. I mean, he's bad. Like, yeah, that's but are we blaming him? Or are we blaming the, the pairing with Simmons and Embiid and him? I mean, that I'm not going to put that all on Embiid. Uh, you know, certainly I think that the, the lineup fit questions are, are very real, but – He's giving you good minutes at other times in other configurations. Uh, when you're looking at your main ball handler being a total non-shooter, that's going to create problems for everybody, um, kind of one way or the other, unless you're playing totally spread out as, as much as you possibly can around Simmons. So um, I think what we're diagnosing here is, uh, you know, kind of like a, a symptom rather than the cause. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not saying whose fault it is. The fact of the matter is that Al Horford's a bad basketball player statistically when on the floor as a power forward, and he's a great player when he's on the floor as a center. Like, that's all you need to know. Like, that's it. Yeah, for sure. And then that, go, that goes back to Elton Brand, though, right? I mean, this is sort of his design. I mean, and he put together a very complicated summer with a lot of intricate moves, um, and I think it was banking on those two guys working 
together a lot better than they have. Because, of course, you were going to stagger, and you were going to find benefits from the stagger between Embiid and Horford. But ultimately, if you're looking at the playoffs and saying, we want to have our best five guys on the court late in games, we want to have a go-to lineup that's capable of smothering uh, you know, the premier playmakers in our conference, don't both those guys have to play together? And doesn't that wind up being a pretty big problem if they do? It does. Boston has a great comeback. The two probably most underperforming teams in the league played each other tonight. We'll talk about those. If you're looking for a last-minute fun sports gift for the holidays, go to BreakingT.com slash Lockdown. Breaking Tea makes sports T-shirts about teams' passion moments great for any fan for the holidays. So go to BreakingT.com slash Lockdown, and then feel free to search the site for other great shirts and fun sports gifts that are on BreakingT.com slash Lockdown. Ben Golliver, Washington Post columnist, sports columnist along with us here as we continue uh, on this Thursday edition of Locked on NBA. Rejecting the screen has gone ISO today as well. So when you're done with this podcast, make sure you go listen to Rejecting the Screen with Noah Kozlov and Adam Stenko. Uh, Boston with a pretty impressive comeback. Uh, Dallas, frankly, pretty impressive performance again without Luka. They've really just – it all – like feels like it makes sense. You see that how great Luke is and how well Dallas is playing without him. But Boston, th- this is kind of the opposite of any. W- this is another example of just how opposite this team is from a year ago. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, like you know, they they could have folded early. I mean, they definitely took a punch. They're on the road. I mean, things uh, you know weren't looking ideal for them in the first half. But I think it was a, a case of Kemba really stepping up, uh, enjoying the moment. Um, you know, I think that he found himself, uh, you know, able to get some pretty clean looks from three. He got hot late. Um, and, you know, ultimately that was the difference. I actually think both these teams, not only are they well coached, but they both have great vibes about them right now. I thought Dallas was going to be a candidate to crumble uh, during Luca's absence. And that's not a disrespect to their individual pieces, right? But it's more about just like when you have one guy who's doing so much and getting so much attention and everything revolves around him and it's clearly his team, uh, that creates a huge void. But they had, uh, you know, de- decent contributions from a, a bunch of different places. Uh, Porzingis had, uh, you know, a pretty nice night. Uh, Seth Curry came in late and, and was certainly trying to, uh, you know, lead a little bit of a frantic comeback uh, in the closing minutes too. So, uh, you know, I do think that if we're looking at coaches around the, the league that maybe get forgotten about, uh, or take it for granted. I still think Carlisle's on that list. Maybe the two guys we've led with today, Spolster and Carlisle, are the two most forgotten coaches in the league. Hey, could I ask you that? Like, do you think either one of those guys would be a good candidate for USA basketball down the road? Like, to me, with Spolster, like, he's coached superstars, but he's also coached role players. He's gotten the most out of people. I think he's, uh, you know, he, he's no nonsense. I think that he's got, you know, the utmost respect from his players. You know, minus Dion Waiters, who <laughs> that's more of a Dion problem rather than a Spolster problem. Uh, but I could see him really thriving that, in that role. Uh, and you know, with Carlisle, I mean, you know, maybe it's a little bit of a different case. He's at a different stage of his career. But uh, as USA basketball kind of plots its, you know, maybe post Popovich future down the road, uh, I'd like to see Spolster get a look. And you know what, Spolster does not get played uh, maybe the credit for what he deserves. Um... The fact that he is of Asian descent and a head coach in the NBA, there's a uniqueness to him that seems to be have that story got kind of played a little bit early and never seems to hold. But there is something about him that's, you know, somewhat historical in his place in the history of this league. 
Oh, and he was just so young too when he when he took on the pressure of coaching LeBron and everybody thought he was going to get fired. I mean, remember the bump, you know, the bump heard around the world where LeBron's coming off the court, and uh, you know, certainly we've seen other coaches wilt in the face of uh, of LeBron and the star power and just the attention and the scrutiny. And he held up brilliantly throughout that entire run. Uh, you know, ha- has two titles to show for it, four final appearances to show for it. And they've been respectable basically the whole way uh, since uh, that team fell apart, despite the fact they lost Chris Bosh for absolutely nothing due to a major health, uh, you know, scare. So, yeah, I, I think that uh, he's doing a great job. And, you know, same deal with, um, with Carlisle, too. I mean, for Carlisle to have this knock that he's uh, – always going to favor veterans, not trust young players. Like that knock had, had been around him for what, 10, 15 years. And for that entire story to get turned upside down because of how he entrusted Luca as a rookie. And then basically how he built the NBA's best offense around Luca uh, in Luca's second season. To me, he gets credit for that too. Of course, Luca should get the individual awards. We're talking about most improved player or, you know, being on MVP ballots, all NBA, all that kind of stuff. Uh, but it's not happening by accident. I mean, Carlisle is certainly having a, a major role in it. Uh, let's run over to the New Orleans-Minnesota game, which is probably the two most disappointing teams. Now, Carl Anthony Towns doesn't play tonight, and Minnesota loses again. Um, they're 3-10 and 10 at home. And, and they've, been dro- they've been dropping a lot of games lately, too, and it's such poor timing because Towns is never injured. And they have, like, a nice soft schedule here for a little bit where it's a bunch of under 500 teams where they can maybe get back on track. For him to be out uh, is just really tough for them. Both these teams should be better, right? Yeah. I mean, for the Pelicans, um, the Zion thing, I think it just hung over their whole season, frankly. You know, I mean, he is such a phenomenon. He is such a ball of energy. He was such a major part of their offense during the preseason. I mean, it feels like years ago now, doesn't it? But remember when Zion was just racking up 20-plus a night every single game during the preseason and dunking on everyone and going downhill from uh, you know, the free-throw line after you know, coming off these curls and just making defenses uh, you know, do whatever they possibly could to stop them? And they just don't have that type of force. Um, it's been a kind of an inexplicable season, and for me – the question becomes, like, do they really want to blow it up? Like, do they want to wait until they can see what Zion can do on the court? Or do they slow play it with Zion? Just don't even bring him back this year. You know, trade off some of these veterans for future picks and enter, you know, a, a deeper rebuilding cycle. I, I feel like, to me, they're kind of at a crossroads as they, as they come into the trade deadline. I just want to point out, I'm not buying this Zion injury destroyed their season. I, I, I really? called, yeah, because I called two of Zion's preseason games. He's incredible and the worst defensive player I've ever seen. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Really? So bad. Why should he be good? He's a 19-year-old rookie. There's never been a good 19-year-old rookie defensively in the NBA. I'm not even being critical. I mean, like, he was terrible defensively. But that's not his fault. That's just what 19-year-old rookies are. When was the last time there was a 19-year-old rookie that led his team to winning games? Well, I hear you on that. I just thought he was a special player with a special athleticism and certainly like, you know, it's kind of an off-court impact as well where, you know, people are buying in in different ways and their roles had to all change because they were, you know, it was going to be Zion's team to me. I mean, him and and Holiday were sort of supposed to be the leaders, I thought. 
I mean, if you're talking about bad defenders, like New Orleans has that going around, right? I mean, they're a bottom five defense right now. Um, I think some of the guys who have been getting credit for having nice seasons, uh, you know, especially like a Brandon Ingram, uh, you know, a lot of his big numbers aren't translating to wins, I think, in part because, you know, they give it back on the other end a little bit too easily. Uh, and there's also a bunch of individual guys who have good reps defensively, whether it's Lonzo, uh, you know, Derek Favors, uh, you know, Drew Holiday. Like, they should not be a bottom five defense, even without Zion, uh, to me. And so I think, you know, that's where you got to lay, you know, at least some of the blame. And I do wonder if Alvin Gentry winds up, uh, you know, being a fall guy in this situation, if, if their record stays as bad as it's been, um, you know, just because of the fact that, you know, their, their defense just has not been acceptable. Well, and with the new general manager, that would seem like a real possibility. I'd like to just remind everyone, I'm not making some, like, hot take here. LeBron won 33 games as a rookie. Right? Oh, and, but look, you know, no, I, I'm not trying to say that he was going to lead them to 50 wins in, like, a title, right? I, I'm mostly just saying, like, I think they would be better than 7-22, and 22, and they would certainly be less depressing and less kind of aimless, and they wouldn't be facing these existential questions of, like, oh, do we need to have to trade away Drew Holiday and – uh, you know, all these other things that, frankly, I don't think that they can avoid right now. Um, I think they have to kind of be honest with themselves and consider, does Holiday need to go uh, for whatever they can get for him? Does Reddick need to be kind of auctioned off uh, at the deadline? Um, how many of these other younger guys, you know, including Lonzo, are long-term fits, right? Um, or do they really need to kind of like, you know, scrape this thing out and, uh, you know, go forward with kind of a, uh, you know, a different look next year? Is there a Drew Holiday landing spot? We'll find out from Ben here in just a second. And why tonight is a very, very important night for the NBA in its future, its current landscape. All sorts of reasons why tonight really matters. We'll continue talking about that with Ben Golliver. The original Casper mattress combines multiple supportive memory foams for a quality sleep surface with the right amounts of both sink and bounce. Get $100 towards select mattresses by visiting Casper.com at locked on, Casper.com slash locked on, locked NBA, not locked on, just locked NBA. Check out terms and conditions apply. If you can't visit Casper right now, you can find this and other offers from locked on sponsors at locked on podcast.com slash offers do you have a landing spot for drew holiday well there's a couple that i could think of the first one i've been toying with though is actually your neck of the woods uh, just because of the conley situation like is there any interest there do you think in trying to turn conley and some other minor assets into an upgrade at point guard uh in, in some sort of a deal i know that that would be uh, pretty reactive and maybe not uh exactly uh, in Dennis Lindsay's sort of, uh, you know, reputation wheelhouse. Uh, but I'm just wondering, like, is there a panic level yet uh, setting in in Utah where you might want to try a different option at that spot? Well, panic is not something that, that or- this organization really does, right? It's pretty thorough and kind of, th- you know, thought through. And, and so that's not an approach that I think you see out of a Dennis Lindsay-run organization, Justin Zanuck-run organization. Um I don't think there's an like I would be really surprised if there's an interest in moving Mike Conley. I think they still believe that would work. Now on the other end, they made the first deal last year when they traded Kyle Korver for Kyle Korver with Alec Burks, and they've been willing to make some moves. Obviously, even acquiring Mike Conley, so uh, it, it's an interesting question. It's a it's not something I would suspect 
Um, but and it's an organization that's pretty pragmatic, but it's also an organization that's pretty much made a move at every opportunity. Right. Yeah. I mean, frankly, I would I would just like to see it because I want to see Utah be better and and get closer to the expectations I had from from the preseason standpoint because I just I'm not sure it's working as well as I had hoped. Another team is actually uh, you know the the team that played. Uh, the Pelicans uh, tonight, which was the Minnesota Timberwolves. I mean, I think they were linked to, you know, D'Angelo Russell at various points. I think maybe some people floated out of Chris Paul for them as well. Um, I could see Holiday being a fit in their backcourt, and maybe it would be a kind of a situation where you're flipping Teague uh, and, you know, other parts around him to, to bring back Holiday and, and locking him in for a couple years and hoping he can have a nice pairing with uh, – with towns. I mean, what do you think about that one? Well, it's interesting because they're at a weird space, right? They're not, they're falling too far out of it to go make a move for this year. So they got to be making moves for the future. There's no good free agents this year. They're going to be able to change mm-hmm. rosters. It also means I think it's going to really limit trades because there's no need to clear salary cap space in this off season either for teams. So if you're Minnesota and you're suddenly looking at this, trying to figure out how, you know, they're, they're vastly underperforming. You've got, You've got to find a way to, to improve. That that might have to be, you know that might be as good an answer as there is, um, because yeah, of the fact you're not doing they, it in free agency. They, they think, oh, sorry, I was going to say, don't you think they face a little pressure too because of the town factor of just keeping him happy and engaged? You know, I mean, it's it's tough to go through a season where you're losing eight straight games again, and you know what's the light at the end of the tunnel, right? And you now done it with your second coach in a row. Mm-hmm. Or third, if you count Sam yeah. Mitchell, or fourth, if you count Flip Saunders, or fit, like, I mean, it's Carl Anthony Towns has gone through an awful lot. He has, and you know, just spending a little bit of time around that organization uh, recently, it feels like they've got good alignment. It feels like he's relatively happy. It feels like he likes Ryan Saunders. It definitely feels like the front office and the coach are all on the same page here. So I think that you know, kind of focuses their effort not on, you know radical solutions but sort of pragmatic upgrades of like how can get the talent get better and we know they wanted russell i mean that was sort of their their major target but if golden state is at least you know willing to to ride with him you know until the summer i think they should be exploring whatever they can do um you know especially if they're able to kind of uh you know turn teague into an upgrade at that spot i mean to me it's worth whatever draft picks or you know other minor players you got to throw in to get that done all right tonight's a massive night for this league there's been all these stories about the drop in TV ratings, LeBron going west, the Warriors dissolving. All of them might be real. All of them might be false. I don't know. But what I do know is if the NBA doesn't get TV ratings tonight, they this, this is when you get concerned, right? The matchups tonight, you have Giannis Antetokounmpo with LeBron James and Anthony Davis on, East Times, on Eastern Time Zone game. Okay, and then the night game, you have James Harden, Kawhi Leonard, and Paul George. The league cannot have a better schedule on Ignite. If they don't have a ratings bounce tonight, then people just aren't watching. Yeah, and as far as we know, all the stars are going to be healthy and playing too, right? So there's no asterisk that it can be appended. I mean, to even just you know hype this up even more, I mean, don't forget it's not just the superstars. It's the Lakers at 24 and four. It's the Bucks at 24 and four. It's been two teams that you could argue are on a collision course potentially to be in the NBA finals. It's maybe, you know, the, the player of the 2020s in Giannis against the player of the 2010s 
uh, in LeBron James. And on top of all that, they ranked first and second in all-star votes last year and probably will again this year. So you're right. It's a no-excuses environment. They've got to draw ratings. You know, one thing that uh, you know, has been pointed out to me by kind of people in the you know, TV ratings business in the, in, in the industry is that the ratings are down for sure to start the season, but there was an awful lot of front-loaded games with the Pelicans because of Zion and with the Warriors because of Curry. And as it's been explained to me, it was front-loaded intentionally because there was some concern or doubt about whether those teams would have staying power just because of the health factor from Golden State, other guys being injured. And then with the Pelicans, it was like you wanted to get in on the early Zion buzz, but who knows if that's going to be kind of a contending or playoff-type team, right? So by front-loading those teams, somebody else had to be back-loaded, and the back-loaded team was the Lakers. And so when you're looking at like the ESPN and TNT schedules, there's an awful lot of Lakers games coming up here on those you know, prime primetime premier television slots over the next couple of months. So it goes back to your original point. If the Lakers, you know, the most polarizing franchise in the entire league probably, with two of the top five or six players in the league right now, with an MVP candidate and a defensive player of the year candidate in LeBron James and Anthony Davis respectively, if those guys can't get you ratings, something is definitely wrong. Now, it's a big one, I think, tonight. The, that narrative, the narrative is gaining momentum, and they need to stop it. For sure. And look, I mean, it's, that's not the only thing that's kind of gone wrong for the NBA over these last couple of months, too. I mean, you have the high-profile injuries. You have the dissolution of the Warriors. Those are major stories, too. And then you also have the China story, right? And, you know, and not to, uh, you know, make this too sad or too dark, but there's the, the, the health factor of, of David Stern recently as well. I mean, I look at, you know, this last three- or four-month stretch as probably the toughest time of Adam Silver's tenure since the uh, you know Donald Sterling incident, right? I mean, things were going pretty swimmingly there for a long time. The, the Warriors were drawing major ratings. They are playing a fun style of basketball. They're bringing in fans from all over the world. And this has definitely been a rough patch here the last couple of months. I think if I was in the league office, my attitude would be like, please, Lakers, you know, like save us. <laughs> like, let's turn these ratings around and get back on track. Should be a good one. Big games all night on the Thursday night. Ben Golliver is the Washington Post national columnist. Make sure you read him. Go to his Twitter account, at Ben Golliver. His pinned tweet will give you access to his weekly newsletter uh, from the Washington Post, so make sure you grab that. I'm David Locke. He's Ben Golliver. Tomorrow, it's Anthony and Adam coming your direction with their edition of Locked On NBA. It's always a lot of fun on a Friday. And make sure that you remember to watch, listen to Josh Lloyd with Locked On Fantasy Basketball in uh, his weekly or daily breakdowns as well. As I mentioned earlier, rejecting the screen's gone ISO, so tell your smart device to play the po- most recent episode of podcast, Rejecting the Screen. Have a good day.